0: All right, why don't we go ahead and, and get started. I really don't want to delay it too long because I felt like 30 minutes last week did not get through very much, and we want to allow time for some questions. So let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer, and then we'll get started. Father, once again, we're gathered together to study your word and to examine this doctrine of election, predestination, reprobation, to see how it all fits together and to ultimately see how you are glorified through uh, this truth. So give us clarity of of thought and discussion and uh, help us to to be able to walk away better equipped to serve you and to to know you better. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if if you need a handout, just let me know. And they're up here in the front table. Um, we got through, last week, we got through the definition of predestination, and we saw how that uh, predestination is, is taught in scripture, and there's two sides to that coin. There's election, and there's reprobation, and we used the definition from a, a 17th century Dutch pastor and theologian named Wilhelmus Ibrakel and um, we worked our way through those two and then we fielded a few questions but we got as far as Romans 8:29 through 30 this has been called the golden chain because each one of these items that are mentioned uh, being uh, foreknew, predestined, um, called, justified, glorified all of these things are part of the, the order of salvation, and the order of salvation is how God applies through the power of the Holy Spirit, salvation to his elect in time. So uh, part of our salvation includes our calling into Christ, but that doesn't happen at the same time as our glorification. Our glorification will not happen until we see Christ with our own face. Okay, so these things happen in time, but they're all part of salvation, and they all go together and cannot be removed from one another. That's why it's called the golden chain. It can't be broken. When God calls someone into Christ, he will most surely justify them. And for those he called and justified, he will most surely glorify. It is not possible for God to call someone effectually and and bring them to faith, justify them, and then in the end say, well, I'm not going to actually glorify them. I'm not going to bring them all the way to the end of their salvation. Um, they go together. So, this passage, in addition to teaching on the order of salvation and on the, on the beauty of, of the golden chain and how none of these things can be broken, this also is one of the verses that opponents to predestination will go to in order to kind of prove their case. So, they they would see, no, 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 no. Um, God does not elect His people. Uh, according to his good pleasure and will, completely apart from their, meaning the people's acts or, or, or um, good works or, or faith, what he does is he looks down the corridor of time. And I think I remember we kind of did it like this. Let's call this um, eternity past and this eternity future. And let's say the, the cross is somewhere right here. What they're saying is, opponents to predestination are saying, no, in in eternity past, somewhere along the line, um, they saw uh, Christian A over here in 2022, and in eternity past, God sees that person A will hear the gospel and respond positively. Based on seeing that, God in eternity past elects that person for salvation, So what their argument is saying is for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. He's saying he predestined those that he knew would respond positively to the gospel. That's that's called the Arminian position. Okay? Um, In response, we would say this. Um, The problem with understanding Romans 8, 29 through 30 is that or new in this verse does not mean having knowledge about someone or or something uh, or, or someone, and and I think we can immediately recognize that God is is omniscient, meaning He knows everything. At, at no point in God's existence, God has existed from eternity past and into, into eternity future. He has no beginning, and and He also doesn't have any beginning of knowledge. God never has an original thought or something that he's never thought of before. He knows all things, and he knows them simultaneously, and he's always known them. So it's not that in the past, all of a sudden, God knew something that he didn't know. It's also not true that God knew something about them, meaning how they would respond to the gospel. If we look at 829, it says, those whom he foreknew. So God is not knowing some fact about a person. He's saying that God knew them for those whom he foreknew. So it's not actual um, informational knowledge about someone or about what something that's going to happen in the future. It's a personal relational knowing. We referred to that this morning when we looked at 1 Corinthians 8. um, Those who know God and are known by God. So, to, to give a couple examples, uh, 1 Corinthians 8.3, but if one loves God, one is known by him. That's a personal, relational knowing. It's not knowing some fact about them, or it's not knowing about their existence. 2 Timothy 2.19, the Lord knows those who are his. You can hear that relational knowledge in that verse. Uh, God has not cast away his people, which he foreknew, new in a saving relational sense. And then to give the other side, look, here it is used by Jesus in terms of not knowing someone. Uh, Jesus says in a couple places, Matthew 7 and 25, I never knew you, or I know you not. He doesn't mean that he's unaware of their existence. Of course he knows them, that they exist. Of course he knows everything about them in his divine nature. Um, what he's talking about is you're not one of mine. You're not among the elect. So Romans 8.29 says nothing about knowing whether or not someone would believe, and neither is that idea found anywhere in the entire Bible. You're just not going to find it. That's not what it means. It does say explicitly in Ephesians, I think we looked at that last week, that God chose us according to his good pleasure and according to his perfect will. If you look at Ephesians 1, there's the basis. Remember, we said it's not a lottery. He's not cranking on the, big, on the big bingo ball and just randomly pulling people out. He does have his reasons, but they are unknown to us. Um, it's not based on their good deeds or their bad deeds or how they're going to respond to the gospel later on. It's um, according to his good pleasure. Now, even if, I, I hope that's enough, but even if we were to throw out all these verses... We're going to throw out everything I just said. Um, there's still a huge problem, and it's been observed by many people. I'm going to give you a quote from Millard Erickson. He's a theologian. I'm not sure if he's still alive or not, but he was contemporary at least a few years ago. He says this, It should be noted that a certainty of outcome is inconsistent with freedom, and it is, Divine foreknowledge, as the Arminian understands that term, presents as much difficulty for human freedom as does divine foreordination. For if God knows what I will do, it must be certain that I'm going to do it. So let's unpack that a minute. He's saying it should be noted that if certainty of outcome, certainty of outcome, so he's saying if if we are certain that person A is going to respond favorably to the gospel, if there's no way that this this knowledge of this outcome is going to be wrong. In other words, it has to be this way. He has to respond positively. He or she has to respond positively to the gospel. If that certainty is inconsistent with freedom, and I said, and it is, because if, if this is so certain that it can't be changed at all, well, what does that mean? It means that that person is not free to do anything else other than what is certain. You see that? And if it's that certain, if there's no possibility that they could ever change it, well then, who who set that? Who who determined that? It can't be the person, because remember we're talking about the eternity past. That's when God predestined and elect, elected some. This person hasn't even been born in yet. They don't exist. Who could have possibly determined or set the outcome? of the response to the gospel. And of course the answer is God. And that's, what, that's Erickson's point. He's saying this, this Arminian position is still problematic. In, in, in this position, he's saying um, it's, it's just as much uh, as a problem for, for human freedom as does divine foreordination. Either way, you still come back to God being the one deciding, appointing, determining, decreeing. It can't be the person themselves. So in other words, they're, they're not free. We'll talk more about that later. So do you see what I'm saying? Even if we were to ignore the scriptural evidence that foreknowledge doesn't mean factual information, we're, we've still got a big problem with, with Arminian uh, doctrine. So th- I wanted to cover that. Now, we, we're talking about election, and I want to hit on assurance. We, we just introduced it last week. When we're asking the question, am I elect? We are asking about our standing in Christ. Because of that golden chain, if God elects someone, then they are surely going to be glorified. They're going to make it to the end of salvation. So when we ask, am I elect? What we're really asking is, am I saved? Am I, am I going to be saved? Am I among the elect? So it's a question of assurance now, believers questioning their assurance is not so strange as it might seem. I don't know if we can have somebody read a couple quick passages. Could I get a volunteer to read Hebrews 6, 4-6? through 6? Um, Does somebody say they got it? Okay, thanks. And then 1 Corinthians 10, 1-12. We haven't gotten there in our sermon series yet. Somebody else want to read that one? Okay. So... Uh, As soon as you got it, Jack, go ahead. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6.
1: For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away, to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put him...
0: Thank you. If you remember, Hebrews is all about telling these believers to hold on to their faith and not go back to to Judaism and the Old Covenant. There's a lot of information in there. That passage in particular is showing them that it is possible for someone to be professing Jesus Christ, professing faith in them, and yet still fall away. And it's a warning against doing that. It's warning for those who are the visible covenant community, those who have been baptized, those who are coming to the table, those who are professing faith in Jesus. It's a warning telling them, watch out, hold on to your faith, because if you go back, that's it. Um, let's read 1 Corinthians 10, 1 through 12. Go ahead.
2: For
0: That's a New Testament passage written to the church warning them about falling away. It's given to people who are professing belief, who have been baptized, who are taking the Lord's Supper. and, And he explicitly says this is meant to be an instruction or a warning to us when he refers to all those Old Testament passages and events. So these are real warnings to church-going, baptized, table-taking believers. And the reason is because not everybody who is in the visible church is truly among the elect. You've heard me say this before. Not everyone who professes Christ possesses Christ. Now, this doesn't mean that we need to be suspiciously looking at everybody and wondering if they're in Christ. It's a theological truth. We understand that there is a visible church people we see that that make a credible profession of faith and and are coming to the table and coming to worship and members of Peace Community Church and all all the churches in in the world. But then there's, within that, a smaller subset. subset. If you want to think of these as two circles, okay? Visible church, invisible church. The invisible church are those who are truly among God's elect. Those people who are also... Part of the visible covenant community they made a credible profession they're coming to the table, they've been baptized but and only God knows who the invisible church is and the difference between the invisible and the visible but they are truly in Christ meaning everything we looked at in Romans 8 applies to them they have been called actually. they have been justified and that is irreversible They, they will be glorified on the day Okay, so that, those two verses that Hebrews passage, that 1 Corinthians passage they're, they're within this framework of understanding the new covenant, the visible and the invisible church those are warnings, now all of that is to say you can see why some believers today would question their salvation even if they're coming to church, been baptized coming to the table, verses like that, passages like that Give them pause and say, now, wait a second. These are real warnings to Christ's new covenant church. I need to make sure I am in Christ. So you can see why it might be questioned. Uh, Acts 8, 9 through 24. We're not going to read the whole thing. I hope you're familiar with it. It's uh, the baptizing of Simon the magician. That was made, the, the apostles baptized Simon based on a credible profession of faith. So they baptized him. Later, it turned out, he was not in Christ. Are we prepared to say the apostles made a mistake? I hope not. They were doing things correctly. They were administering baptism as commanded by the Lord. It's to be given on a credible profession of faith. But not everybody who is baptized is in Christ. So, um, oh, and and finally, Jesus' language. If that wasn't enough, listen to this. For many are called, but few are chosen. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So you, you stack all these up together and you can see why some believers may start to question their assurance. So believing, uh, professing believers questioning their assurance, questioning their elect status is a thing and I don't want us to blow it off. I, I don't want us to, um, first of all, I don't want us to beat ourselves up if it's if it's us. If we're the one questioning our salvation, please don't Beat yourself up. It's much more common than you think. Okay? Much more common than you think. And then, second, from a, from a care standpoint, from other brothers and sisters, um, let's understand that this is a real thing and that this is a very emotionally charged thing, too. And let's not downplay it and, and just kind of blow it off and say, oh, you're saved, don't worry about it. No, we need to, to walk with them on this. And let's also not pass judgment on them, saying, well, you must have a weak faith if you don't have assurance. Here's here's a definition of assurance. I don't have a slide for this. Assurance is the conscious knowledge and enjoyment of our justification and elect status. Assurance is the conscious knowledge and enjoyment of our justification and elect status. Assurance of our faith deepens the, the joy of faith but it is not essential to salvation. You see what I'm saying? Assurance of salvation or having assurance of our lex status deepens the joy of faith, but it must be emphasized that it is not essential to salvation. In other words, there are some people on the day who are in the invisible church. They've put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. They're believing. They've been effectually called. They've been justified. But yet at some point in their life, they're struggling with assurance. They're, they're, They're wondering if they are, in fact, truly saved. And in the end, they will be. You see what I'm saying? Not everybody who's in the invisible church has this bedrock, unshakable assurance. And that's okay, because that's not essential for salvation. It's not essential that every single believer knows beyond a shadow of a doubt that they are saved. Because that's assurance, and that's not what our salvation is based upon. It's based on faith in Christ alone. Faith in Christ alone. However, it is possible to have full assurance. Uh, Hebrews ten twenty two. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. That tells us it is possible. 1 John five. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. So it is possible to have assurance. 2 Peter 1.10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm you're calling an election. So we're commanded to seek assurance. So this is a good thing. And a lot of people do have it. And that, that's, that's good. Um, that's, that's the way, um, that's what we're shooting for here. Our assurance, however, is not based upon speculation, wishful thinking, or a deep feeling that, quote, we just know. And I put it in quotes because I had a conversation with somebody at one point and that was their basis or knowing that they were saved. We, we were questioning, we were, we were trying to ask, what, what is the basis for your salvation? How do you know you're saved? And they confidently just said, I just know. And we were looking, it was the elders, and we were looking for somebody that, that, had a, that was pointing to Christ in some way, not just a feeling that they had, or uh, something called a, a quiver in your liver, I think it's been called, or something like that. So it's just this feeling. Our assurance is not based on feeling, It's based on something much more solid. We're going to look at our old friend, the Westminster Confession of Faith. Remember, this is um, not inerrant truth. It's a helpful summary of truth that has withstood the test of time. And Westminster Confession of Faith 18, 1 through 2 says this, although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of God, and a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish. Yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him may in this life be certainly assured that they are in the state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. So this is saying two things. It's saying what? The first part, it's possible to have false assurance. It's possible for people to believe, to be in this visible covenant community and not truly be in Christ so it's possible to have false assurance but then it's also saying in the second half but it is also possible for believers to have true assurance and then this this certainty is not a bare conjecture wishful thinking and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope but an infallible assurance (coughs) excuse me infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation. That's number one. The inward evidence of those graces under which these promises are made. That's number two. The testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are children of God. Number three. Which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance, whereby we are sealed to the day of redemption. So we're looking at one, two, three. And we're going to unpack each one of those in detail here. Number one, the promises of salvation in Scripture. Remember, we're talking about the basis of our assurance. How can we be assured that we are among the elect? Number one, the promises of salvation in Scripture. The Bible gives us several reasons to have assurance of faith. For example... John 1.12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. John 3.15 and 16, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. I'm sure we've read these before. These are promises from God. If this, then that. Uh, Romans ten. Uh, don't uh, no John three thirty six. Then Romans ten. John three thirty six. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And then Romans ten. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Very straightforward. This is a promise. Uh, God's word, as we say repeatedly, is inerrant, it's infallible, it's true. We can trust God that if he says something in his word, he means it, and it's true. So if you place your faith in Christ, then you can know with assurance that you are saved. So this is number one. This is that uh, the promises of God contained in scripture. He gives us these so that we can have assurance. Have you repented and believed in Jesus? Yes and you can be assured that you are saved and therefore among the elect. Number two, evidence that God's grace is at work in the believer. The inward evidence of those graces upon which these promises are made. So these these promises are made, this first ones, the, the assurance of salvation, and then we need to see evidence. Does my life match up with how the Bible describes a follower of Jesus should should look, should look like? Do I see evidence of sanctification in my life? Or am I continuing to become less and less holy, more and more sinful? Am I walking in ongoing unrepentant sin? Who cares what the word of God says? Or are we going the other way? Are we making progress in our sanctification? So scripture contains, again, several verses with these Evidences that we're to look for. And I'm going to just pull up three examples. Okay? Matthew 5, at the end of the, Beat- or at the Beatitudes, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 1 John 3, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. That's an evidence. Second John 9, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. These are just three examples. There's tons of these in Scripture. These are evidences. If you see these evidences in your life, then that is a basis for Assurance. And here's the other thing. You don't need to see them all, and you don't need to see them all the time, and you don't need to see them perfectly. Let me explain. Let's say we've got uh, person X, and they say, um, I've been struggling with assurance. And I hear, I hear you. I understand that the Bible promises if I believe in Jesus, I'm going to be saved. I, I'm still struggling with it. And so we take them to these evidences. We say, all right, well, let's take a look at your life do we see the kinds of things that Scripture presents as being present in believers? And we look at these three, they say, well, um, everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in, which means remain in, the teachings of Christ. And they say, well, I try. I try to abide in in Christ, but sometimes I I don't. So I'm not sure if that's going to give me assurance. They say, okay, let's go to the next one. We know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Do you have any any love at all for your brothers and sisters in Christ? And they said, Well, yeah, but there's one person that I'm, I'm not really getting along with right now, and it really kind of bothered me. And, and I don't I don't want to say that I actually love them. And okay, all right, let's go to the next one. Let's go back one. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Are you have you ever been persecuted for righteousness' sake? And they said, Well, actually, yeah. Um, I just lost my job. Uh, HR wanted me to sign this thing that said I was an ally and, and supportive of, of gay marriage and the LGBTQ. I, I refused to sign it, so I, I lost my job. I said, all right, that's being persecuted for righteousness' sake. You have an evidence of being in Christ, and so you have assurance. And they might reply, well, that's just one. I say, that's all you need. Consider this. Unbelievers have no evidences in their life. None. Unbelievers are not persecuted for righteousness' sake. Unbelievers are not persecuted for Christ's sake because they're not in Christ. It's impossible. Unbelievers do not love their brothers and sisters in Christ because they're not brothers and sisters in Christ with anyone. Unbelievers do not abide in the teaching of Christ because they do not follow Christ. Do you see what I'm saying? And these are just three examples. Unbelievers have no evidences. Christians can have assurance if they have one because they know that God continues the good work that he starts in his people. And even if you don't get along with all your brothers and sisters right now or if there's one person that's just not allowing you to say, yes, I love everyone, you will. God will, God will do that and complete that work in you. Uh, the illustration that's uh, been given for a while like this, it's kind of like a string of pearls. If you grab one of these evidences, and you can lay claim to it and say, yes, this is present in my life, and take it, the rest are going to fall off. You're going to get all of them, okay? Unbelievers have no evidences. Believers have at least one. And these are just three examples. So that's another way that we can have assurance, and then number three, the testimony of the spirit witnessing with our spirit. The testimony of the spirit of adoption, that's the Holy Spirit, witnessing with our spirits that we are children of God. This is lifted directly from Romans eight, sixteen through 17. So here it is. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There's another one of those evidences, suffering with Christ. But this this passage, Romans 8, 16 and 17, is the third evidence that we can have assurance. And there are two schools of thought as to what this means. Two primary camps. Number one, some look at this passage and they say, "Well, this is a a profound sense of communion with God, uh, being overwhelmed by the love of God and the Spirit of God as God applies a scripture passage to us personally." Okay, I think we've all experienced that. We've we've read something in scripture and it just pops out at us, or or we've been praying something and then we look down and there's there's the answer, or you know, in some way, God has used his word powerfully in our life to speak to us, uh, to get our attention, to convict us, something like that. Or, uh, number two, the spirit of God helping us to understand what the promises of God are to his people, as written in scripture, and help us believe them and understand and understand how they apply to us. So this is more... Um, kind of like what the, what the Holy Spirit does, kind of like what we looked at in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, where you know the things of God cannot be discerned by the natural mind, that you have to have the Spirit of Christ, you have, to have, you have to be in Christ to understand the things of God. That's, that's kind of what they're talking about here, and I would lean towards number two as what this is talking about. Specifically, the way this functions as an assurance is the Spirit of God helping us to understand that number one and two apply to us. The the Spirit of God taking us to John 3.16 and saying, that's you. You, God so loved the world, he gave his Son for you, and if you believe in him, you are saved. The Holy Spirit helps apply that to us, helps us understand and believe it. Likewise, the second criteria, the evidences, the Holy Spirit speaking to us, teaching us, showing us that, yeah, hey, being persecuted for righteousness' sake, that's you. Or, Or having love, genuine love, for your brothers and sisters. You have that so you can be in Christ. That's, that's kind of what this third evidence is. Now, um, it's supernatural in both cases. It's, it's the word of God and the spirit of God working in tandem, okay? There, there's always an element of mystery when it comes to the spirit of God. So exactly how the spirit of God applies Romans 8, I mean, we're not gonna try to pinpoint exactly um, what it is. I think we can rest in that, in that mystery but I'm inclined to think it's number two, the Spirit of God helping us to understand the promises of God and applying them to us. So those are the theologically correct answers to am I elect. Those, those are the theologically, theologically correct answers to how can we know if we are among the elect and are, are saved. It's, it's those three things, the promises of God in Scripture, evidences, and then the Spirit witnessing with our spirit. So I'm going to, I want to try to wrap it up a little bit with a, with a warning, with a practical application, and then one more common objection that I'm sure we've all heard. First is the warning. This is from Joel Beakey. He says, The Christian cannot enjoy high levels of assurance while he persists in low levels of obedience. if we are currently walking in ongoing, unrepentant sin, if we know what scripture says and we are flagrantly walking against it and and ignoring the words of Christ, ignoring the conviction of the Holy Spirit and delving headlong into sin, then we are in extreme danger and we won't have assurance. Because uh, it's not designed to work that way. It's, it, the, those that are persisting in ongoing unrepentant sin and rebellion to Christ shouldn't have assurance. So for that person, I would say go back, reread 1 Corinthians chapter 10, apply it to yourself. He can, Paul concludes that section by saying, you cannot come to the table of demons and the table of the Lord. And I call that dual dining. You, you can't say... I am, uh, yeah, I'm right here, and I, I don't really believe I'm in here. And at the same time, as you're coming to church, taking the sacraments, saying you believe in Christ, at the same time living in ongoing unrepentant sin, in complete denial of everything that, that Scripture says, uh-uh, you can't, Paul says in 10, 1 Corinthians 10, that, that doesn't work. There's no dual dining. So that's the warning. Um, for those that are persisting in ongoing disobedience there is no salvation or excuse me there is no assurance and then uh, here's the, the, the quick and dirty answer for um, uh, the practical answer in case you don't have time to, to explain all those three marks and the evidence if it's kind of the elevator question if somebody asks how do I know I'm saved how do I know this whole election thing is real I remember seeing in a, in a Christian publication a cartoon where it was just a line drawing and it was a pastor down on the floor in front of the pulpit as if he had just preached a sermon. And then a, a young woman came forward and she, was, she had uh, uh, spiky hair and, and piercings all over and lots of leather and tattoos everywhere. And the caption read, how about me, pastor, am I among the elect? So if you're ever in the situation where somebody asks you, what about me? Am I among the elect? And what they're really asking, and when, when, the, when somebody, I'm saying maybe even an unbeliever who has a problem with all this, what they're trying to do is put you on the spot. And it's almost as if they're asking, well, if I am among the elect, then, then I can do whatever I want. Or if I'm not among the elect, then it doesn't really matter what I do. That, that's kind of where they're headed. That's what that cartoon was trying to illustrate Here's the quick and dirty answer. If you are walking in... Uh, let's put this way. Let's go to scripture. Here, here's, here's the quick and dirty answer. I would take them to Colossians 1.21. It says, And you who are once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue... In the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So my, my two-minute answer would be to take them to Colossians 1 and say this. I promise you on the authority of Scripture that if you repent and believe in Jesus Christ and you continue to repent and believe in Jesus Christ every day of your life until you die and you follow him with every fiber of your being, then yes, you can know that you are among the elect. You see what I'm saying? We, we can't tell someone if they're among the elect or not, but we can stand on the promises of Scripture and we can tell them this. It says, if indeed you continue in the faith, and we can communicate that to anybody who's asking about their elect status. If you indeed continue in the faith, Jesus will not disown those who place their faith and trust in him. So if you do that your whole life, you can know that so you have assurance and you're among the elect. I'm going to close with a typical objection and then open it up for questions. Here, here's the, the biggest objection usually that gets raised against the doctrine of election and predestination if God elects some people and not others, then we are not making real choices. How can anyone present the gospel and ask people to repent and believe if that choice has already been determined by God? Aren't we just puppets? That's usually the, the number one objection. And what they're really asking is, isn't the doctrine of election deterministic? And the answer is no. God has ordained that we, his elect, will respond willingly to the gospel as it is presented at the right time and in time, right? Post-regeneration. And all of the choices we make are voluntary because they're what we want to do. We We do decide to do things. That's true. So we could put it this way. God causes us to believe in Christ voluntarily. Uh, consider Acts 13.48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. In that one verse, Scripture places the voluntary real choices and, and actions of people right alongside God's decrees. And it's not a contradiction. It's not an either or it's a both and. So people who voice this objection to, to predestination election are usually making the mistake that in order for our choices to be valid or what they call free, it has to be completely cut off from any influence from God whatsoever. We have to be completely um, uh, unhindered by any of, of God's decrees. And the answer is they do not. Uh, God has chosen some from salvation, for salvation in eternity past, and we make real voluntary choices. And since scripture uh, places both of these things side by side as true simultaneously, we have to agree that they are also simultaneously true. They don't automatically necess- necessitate the negation of one another just because they seem that way to us. Um, uh, Wayne Grudem is a contemporary theologian. He says, where in scripture does it say that our choices have to be free from God's control in order for them to be real choices? And the answer is it doesn't. Uh, Brackle, who we, we use the definition, it says, in our discussion of free will, it should be noted, first of all, that man's free will is not independent from God. Man is totally dependent upon regard and regard, dependent upon God in regard to the foreknowledge and decree of God, for he infallibly knows and has decreed that every matter indeed will have certain outcome and none other. You see what I'm saying? When they, when they say it's deterministic, they're saying it has to be one or the other. either we're free or God's sovereign, but it can't be both. And Scripture says it is both. Another way to look at it is this. Usually when people voice that objection, they're saying um, they're pitting the, the sovereignty of God and our free will against each other, and they're saying those are the opposites. That's not completely true. I would say the, the polar opposite of God's sovereignty is not freedom. It is autonomy. Right? Autonomy, completely being cut off from God, being completely self-existent, being completely unhindered by any of God's decrees, essentially being our own God, being a rival God, that that would be autonomy. And that would be the opposite of God's sovereignty. But freedom up here, no. No, they go together. Our freedom is not um, disconnected to the decrees of God or the power of God at all. And it's really, it shouldn't be too hard for us to to grasp because we we consider ourselves free right now. Uh, A lot of people consider themselves free, but we have all kinds of hindrances placed on our life all the time that don't allow us to be completely um, autonomous. For example, um, none of us can fly to the moon right now. Um, That doesn't mean that we aren't free or that, that doesn't mean we don't make free choices. We do make free choices, but we can't make that one. And you can, you can use all kinds of examples. So I want us to see that that objection is trying to pit God's sovereignty against human freedom when the, when the real polar opposite is autonomy, being your own God. And that's not what Scripture is presenting. He's saying freedom, our freedom, our real choices, are real choices, and we are under the sovereignty of God at the same time. Okay? Let's open it up for questions. We've got 15 minutes. Or if you want to go back and ask questions about the definitions that we looked at last week, that's fine too. How how many have heard the deterministic challenge? That, yeah. If election can't be true because it's deterministic and we're just puppets. Yeah. It's common. Okay. <laughs> we are going to get out early. That's, I mean, going once. Jeff's not here. Je- that's, that's true. <laughs> if Jeff was here, we would have some questions. Right. Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Yeah. that I'm hearing you correctly you're asking um, if God is is all loving and he's created all these things, He's decreed everything, how is it that some of the creatures He's created are going are predestined for hell or they're reprobate? Okay, yeah. Um, I would take us back to the the something we covered last week. The doctrine of predestination is designed to magnify the full nature of of God, not just his mercy and his love, but also his wrath and his justice. And so if no one was ever sent to hell as a just punishment for their sin, then there would be no eternal display of the full nature of his character. In addition, if if no one received the due penalty of their sin in, in hell, then, then what is grace? Right? Remember, grace and, and mercy. Mercy is not receiving something we should, um, negatively. Grace is receiving something that we don't deserve. What are those things apart from the justice of God? They're, they're really non-existent. Pastor, I think most of the people I talk to get that. Yeah. But it's, even with that concept. Right. of that and the question is once again um, in light of all that how can there still have the how, how do, why does God still have the reprobate um, why are some people sent without a choice um, when we look at the cross of Jesus Christ we see the ultimate example of someone who receives wrath And remember, as painful and as excruciating as the cross was physically, in addition, Jesus had the entire wrath for God's elect poured out upon him upon the cross. That's supernatural. We can't even begin to fathom what that was like. And if he had been just merely a man, he would not have been able to withstand it. But because he was both God and man, he took that wrath. He didn't deserve it. He, he never earned that. He, he never once disobeyed the Father. He never once broke a command. And yet, in God's good pleasure and his divine decrees, that was God's choice for his redemptive plan. That doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. That, that is the only example of someone receiving something they did not deserve. and then we have the reprobate who are receiving what they deserve Um, I I think part of the answer has to go back to to the cross like that if someone's voicing concern or or, um, uh, uh, unacceptance that that there exists a reprobate then why aren't they voicing concern over, over Christ there's the injustice there's the unfairness right there on the cross. This is actually just, just punishment for their sin. And I think part of the answer has to come back to um, what we talked about, the difference between freedom and autonomy. They're they're asking for complete autonomy. They're asking to step outside of God's redemptive plan and his decrees and just saying, I I don't think it's fair that anybody can't do whatever they want at any time. They, They want to remove themselves from God's redemptive plan. And that's just not possible because they're not God. This is his plan. We can, we can acknowledge and rest in the fact that it is perfect. Um, we don't have to understand all of it, uh, but we can't step outside of it. Yeah. So you said your know,
1: question okay. that God is- needed
0: Is now resurrected and glorified. He he is not receiving uh, any due penalty or imputed penalty in eternity. Yes. For For the elect. Yeah. Right? So
1: isn't that enough? Or does he have to have a display of somebody
0: being tormented to show his wrath? Yeah. So what would you have with, with all those people then? So you would have no one. Being eternally I mean, punishment? Yeah, I mean, that, the yeah. The answer I think would be to consider the alternative. The alternative of not having the eternal display of His full nature and character with those deserve receiving the just punishment for their sins would be to not have anybody. And now we're back to square one, where everybody is is in heaven for eternity, and there is no one receiving their just penalty for their sins. So that that eternal state would not be displaying any kind of character and nature that would reflect wrath and justice
3: think up within that that type of question is the assumption that when Jesus died on the cross he died for all of the sins of everybody indiscriminately into all the world of in creation that's the assumption
0: well I don't and know if it is or not, not yours, you can have Tim ask that
3: yeah I don't know about Tim is, but that particular what usually carries that assumption is the fact that he well why Wasn't Jesus sacrifice on the cross enough? And you mentioned it was enough for the elect because Jesus died for the purpose of saving his people, not for saving the reverie. It was a limited at all. Yes. It was limited as
0: opposed to unlimited. So therefore, Jesus took names to the cross. It wasn't He didn't make salvation possible, he actually accomplished it for the the elect. Don't know who the elect are, and it's a it's a real offer of salvation. Only those who are among the elect will, in fact, believe and be so, saved. So, a question. Yes.
1: I've heard people say, I should, I was I by the Spirit witness to somebody. Yeah. I didn't, he died the next day. I regret because I could have been their last opportunity to hear the gospel. You shouldn't regret that because if they were the elect, I Would surely see that they, yeah. got to happen. you might regret that They weren't obedient. Yeah, but they shouldn't
0: regret that that might
1: have been the last time they heard the gospel, and if and if I you know didn't go, then they go to eternal damnation.
0: I work on that? Yeah, I I think you're you you just summarized it pretty pretty yeah. well. As yeah. as we're witnessing to people, if we miss an opportunity we can and should have some regret that we didn't act on something that we felt prompted to do. But at the same time, we can't hold ourselves responsible for someone's eternal, um, you know, salvation or like status. Here, here's a a couple more. I just remember I had this, um, Oh, they're not up there. Hmm. All right. Well, I have them in my notes. It, um, I, I want to respond to a couple more objections that you might run into, um, world and whole world versus kind of like the whosoever question. um, once in a while, first, for example, First John 2, two He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, uh, not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And then John six fifty one, and the bread that I give for the life of the world is my uh, flesh. So God sent His Son to the world, but not all people will be saved. But the whole world still is the object of God's love. First um, John 2:2 2, 2 does not mean that uh, Jesus's propitiation is, is valid for every single person. It's not teaching universalism. It means that, in addition to John and his immediate audience, Jesus's propitiation is for everyone who places their faith in Him. In other words, all the elect. And so, um, the the meaning of verses like that. Whenever you run into verses that seem like they're they're kind of universalistic or they're talking about everybody, it's good to go into the rest of scripture and see um, the balance of the whole of scripture. There are scripture verses obviously that plainly teach that not everyone is going to be saved. And then also likewise, it's helpful to go to scripture and see that some of those universal looking words are used in the other direction. For example, uh, Revelations 12, uh, Revelation 12, twelve nine, and the great dragon was thrown down that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. Well, Satan doesn't deceive the whole world in the sense of everybody. He deceives all the people that are going to be deceived. Uh, 1 John 5.19, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Well, not the whole world. Uh, it doesn't mean that in that sense. So you have to be careful when you come to those kind of universalistic looking phrases when it says the whole world or you. Um, oh, that's the next one, any and all verses. Uh, we're, we're not going to have time, but if you want to write these down, Romans 5.18, Romans 11.32, 1 Timothy 2.4-6, 2, 2 Peter 3-9, through 9, the all in those contexts does not mean all universally, but it's talking to the people that are under discussion in that particular part of Scripture. Um, for example, let's go to one of those, and then... That's it. Hold on. Let's go to the First Timothy. Uh, First Timothy, two, four through six. Uh, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. You, you'll hear some people say that and say, see, it's God's will that all people be saved. And they'll teach universalism or they'll teach Arminianism or, or whatever. He's talking in the context. It says, first of all, then, I, excuse me, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving may be made for all people. And then he lists some things, kings and that and, and the people like that, he's talking about all kinds of people. God, God wills that all kinds of people, not just the wealthy elite, not just the downtrodden, but all people come and receive this good news that is proclaimed to them. So in, in those cases where you run across where something says all or all people, we need to pay attention to the context. It's not teaching universalism. Okay, yes. The statement, I am the potter, Yes. He can do whatever he wants. Yes. Because he's God. Yes. We don't fully understand it. Right.
1: Right.
0: He can do whatever he wants. Yeah. That's an illustration that God chooses to use in his word. And it's a very strong illustration. Um, It's it's talking about God and an object. Uh, Now, we are not objects. And, and that's why it's a little bit hyperbole. But it, 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 the force of that argument carries, carries that weight of the sovereignty of God choosing to do what he wills with his creation. Yes? I got
3: one, got two, a minute and a half. One of guys asked this question. It was that God is a God of love The reason he does that, he does is out of love. He desires his creatures to love him. Mm -hmm. If God makes a, uh, coerces
1: love by making and predestining a certain person's to,